0: Amen. All right, so this is part two uh, of last week's message. Um, and here's the deal. I don't have time today. There's a lot to get through today. I don't have time to go back and review all of last week, so, so you're going to have to go back and watch that. If you missed last week, hop on Facebook or YouTube or whatever and go back and watch uh, last week's message or listen to it on the podcast. But what we've been doing is we've been talking about our lives as if they were houses is we've been asking this question. There's a bigger question, and that's this. If what Jesus says is true and really possible, then what can that mean for our lives and what does it take to live the way that Jesus says we can live? Now, when you read the Bible, the first four books of the New Testament, we call them the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the biographies of Jesus, right? They tell Jesus' story. They tell Jesus' life. They unpack Jesus' teaching for us. And, And what those Gospels tell us is that when Jesus began his ministry, he came preaching one sermon over and over and over and over again at the beginning of his ministry. And it was this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And here's what this means. We've been talking about this really since the beginning of the summer. Here's what that, that message, right, the, the core of Jesus' message, the, the, the so what am I supposed to do with that aspect of Jesus' message means this. Repent means that you can reconsider. You can rethink, you can rework your strategy for how you live. And it's not because of you. It's because of Jesus. It's because Jesus makes it possible for anyone and everyone to live every moment of every day connected to a God that loves you, a God that likes you, and a God, like Casey said, wants his unique goodness for you, wants you to be and become what he desires for you to be. And so what we've been saying is this, is because of what Jesus makes possible in our daily lives, we, you and I, we can experience the truest and realest forms of peace, abundance, security, and safety on this side of heaven. That's possible. And I know for a lot of us, when we think about the situations and circumstances in our lives, we look at something like that and we go, that doesn't seem real. It seems like a fairy tale which is how a lot of people look at the Bible, right? It's how a lot of people in the world look at the Bible. It's just a fairy tale. It's a work of fiction. There's no way that that is possible because if you seen the state and status of the world, there's no way that can be real, but Jesus says it can. In fact, here's what Jesus says. Matthew 7, starting in verse 24, he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and then does them, Anyone who hears these words of mine and does them it is like a wise or skilled man, skilled builder who built his house on the rock. And when the rains come, when the floods come, when the winds blow and beat against the house, it doesn't fall. Why? Because it's been founded on a rock. It's been founded on a place of real and true peace, abundance, security, and safety. And then Jesus says, "Anyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them it is like a foolish." And the word "foolish" in Scripture means empty and useless. Man who built his house on the sand, and the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blow, and beat against the house, and it fell. And great, which means it took lots of people with it, great was the fall of it. So what Jesus has been essentially saying, and what we've been unpacking really since the beginning of the summer, is this. When you think about your house, where you live where your life happens. I mean, your house is kind of what your life is built on. Your your house, your home is kind of the thing, is kind of the hub that your life kind of is, is based on, is rooted to and connected to. Think of your house as an outward reflection and representation of your life. But the thing that Jesus says here too is, we gotta pay attention to this, is we have a critical role to play in this. When it comes to how we build our lives and what we build our lives on, we actually, Jesus says, have to take what he says is good, real, right, true, and best and then actually do something with it. We have to put it into practice. I share this quote every week so far. It's this. It's, it's not going to make a bit of difference. If you, if you hear, typo, if you hear, believe, or agree with what Jesus says is a better way to live your life, if you don't actually put it into practice, if you don't put into practice what he's telling you to do and how he's telling you to live, you can agree with it. You can read the Bible and go, this sounds great. Jesus, I agree with you. Jesus, I believe what you have to say, but I'm not going to do anything about it it's not going to make a bit of difference in your life just agreeing with it believing in it if you don't do anything about it it won't make a difference so in our series we've been kind of following Jesus down this rabbit hole this parable this metaphor of our lives and houses and please understand this i get At some point, all metaphors and parables break down, right, as you continue to kind of play them out. Like, all metaphors break down at some point, and that's the the case here. So we're just trying to get an idea. We're trying to use something concrete to describe something abstract. So that's really what this is. And so last week, we talked about the door of your house. And when I say house, think life. What's the front door of your life? And we said this, that the door, the doors in our lives, or the front door in our lives, what it does is it marks the line, it marks it the line and the space between what the world says is normal and where God defines what's good, right, true, and best, and what will or will not happen in our lives. A door is a boundary marker. And we said this last week, that the first role and responsibility of your front door is to protect those inside from outside, from the outside, weather, from intruders, from thieves, or or unwanted, unwelcome guests. So... Here's what all of this means, right? When we go from metaphor to the real world and we start talking about what this looks like in our marriages, our parenting, our families, our relationships, here's what it means. According to what we see in Scripture, going by what Jesus says is good, best, right, and true, the primary but not sole role and responsibility of providing protection being the front door to the home, which is your life, belongs to the man, the father, and the husband in the house, The primary, not the sole role, the primary role of providing and protecting those inside the house belongs to the man, the husband, or the father in the house. That's according to Scripture. Jim Bergen, I quoted him last week. He said this, it's it's the primary but not sole responsibility of every man, right, and husband to provide your wife and children and those connected to your life with a home, with a life that is centered on the truth of Christ and to serve as a warrior priest who will lead everyone in your house to bring honor and glory to God and who will protect them from anything or anyone that might try to harm them or take from them, including yourself and your own selfish desires. And this is where it gets real. I said this last week, God will hold you responsible, and we'll hold you accountable for how you do this or how you don't do this. And this was the absolute main takeaway for our men last week. It was this, if men succeed in everything else in life but fail in our primary and priestly role and responsibility to provide and protect our families, then we failed completely and totally. I said last week, don't show me your bank account. Show me a wife that is confident in her husband, that her husband will be faithful that her husband will provide for her, will protect her. Don't don't show me the big house that you want to live in and the the fancy vacations you want. Show me kids that know my dad cares about us. My dad will show up. My dad will not bail on us. Show me that, because that's what matters. That's what ultimately, at the end of the day, you can have the big house, the, the, the fancy vacations, and drive all the nice stuff and live in the right parts of the neighborhood, have a bank account that is flush, but fail at being the provider and protector. And if you do that, you've completely failed. That was the main takeaway for our men last week. And, and last week, last week was for the fellas, right? We said that. This week is for the ladies. And I had somebody ask me last week if talking that directly to men makes me nervous, and my answer was no, not one bit. But this week, I'm terrified. <laughs> it's like there's a, there's a line in a famous action movie where, where one of the characters who normally is not afraid is clearly afraid, and another character comes to him and says, you ain't afraid of no man. And the other character looks back at him and says, that ain't no man, right? So this is one of those, Like, I am, here we go, right? Um, If men are the front door, the provider and protector of their homes, women are the thermostat. And I had someone say this, can we be something a little bit cooler than that? How about like smart home hub or security system? I'm great with that. Put whatever you want in there, right? I'm going with thermostat, and you'll see why here in just a minute. But if you want to be, it can be cooler than that if you want to be cooler than that. So men are the front door. If men are the front door, women then are the thermostat of their homes. Now, before you start typing your angry text message, like, like, what do you mean? Like, the dudes get to be the door and we're just some thing that hangs on a wall, right? Or something that, like, we bark orders at? Like, Alexa, what's the weather? Right? You know, like, that's not what I'm saying, right? Hear me out. According to Wikipedia, <laughs> a thermostat is this. It's a regulating device that monitors the environment in a physical system or space and then takes action so that the environment in that system is maintained near or at a desired set point. A thermostat seeks to reduce the error between the desired and measured temperatures in a space. A thermostat combines both the sensing and the action elements within a system or within a space. In other words, the thermostat isn't just something that hangs on your wall. Your thermostat is something that senses and measures the health and stability In an environment. And then as it measures and senses that health and stability, it takes action to correct errors. To regulate the environment in a way that's healthy and desired. And you know this is true, right? If you ever had your heat stop working in in the winter or your AC go out in the summer, you know how important at that point the thermostat is in your home. Why? Because your house gets uncomfortable. And at times your house can become unlivable. Unlivable. Because there's nothing to regulate the environment and correct the errors that are happening within that environment, right? It's not supposed to be this way. When the thermostat goes out and it's too hot in our house or it's too cold in our house, we know this is not the way we're supposed to live. Something needs to change. So, again, if you're taking notes, the way we take notes at Adventure is just grab your phones, take pictures of the screen. You're probably going to want to do that today, either to take home and have a conversation or to use inside as evidence later, Right? When your thermostat isn't working, everything in your life inside your home now becomes under the influence of the weather and the temperature and the conditions going on outside of the house. And you can kind of start to see how this stuff works, right? The front door keeps weather, intruders, and unwelcome guests out of the house. The thermostat is in charge and has the power and authority to establish, sense, regulate, monitor, and keep a stable living environment inside the house. And this is partnership. That's what we talked about, right? When, when we read and we people quote Ephesians 5, right, when those, those verses specifically written to men and women regarding marriage, a lot of times we, we like to skip. We skip over the verse. We skip over verse 21, 20 and 21 where it says that we are to submit, which means to voluntarily and joyfully belong to one another. We skip that one and we just want to get into where who's supposed to submit to who, who's in charge. But this is what this means. It's a partnership. It means we belong together, we belong to one another. Men with their primary but not sole role and responsibility and women with their primary but not sole role and responsibility. We work together because what we are and who we are is of equal value. And what we are and who we are is we bring our gifts, our unique gifts, talents to the to the table to our family at an equal value. And I know this, like there, there, are, there are schools of thought in our culture. This isn't in my notes. I just kind of added this this morning because I feel like it's important for me to, understand, to help you understand what's kind of happening in the conversations that happen out in the world. There's two, two, two camps, right? And in these, these camps, and anytime time reading scripture leads you to form and develop a camp, odds are you're probably not reading scripture properly. But there are two camps, egalitarian and complementarian, Right? These are words that were invented about 30 or 45 years ago. And, and really, at the time, it was, it was meant to try to help people understand what the Bible says about the roles of men and women in the house. What it's become, what it's devolved into, is trying to answer two questions. Who has the power? Who has the authority? Who's in charge? And that's not the point. Like I need us to understand this today as we dive into this. The point is not a question of authority, because as we're about to find out, the only one that has authority is Jesus. Jesus says in the Great Commission, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And from that authority, Jesus commands and gives us the opportunity to work and operate ultimately under his authority. So if you want to know who's in charge, the answer is Jesus. Now, everybody check their pulse, take a breath. Because here's what it means, right? Being this thermostat metaphor, here's what it doesn't mean. And I need, I need to be super clear on this. The environment in the house or in our lives belonging to the woman, the wife, or the mom does not mean that she is the servant, waiter, maid, cook, provider of sex on demand, and the live in babysitter to watch the kids. That is not what that means. That is not what I'm saying. I need you to hear this. The idea or the concept that somewhere in the Bible it implies that women, moms, or wives are to stay home, raise kids, cook food, clean the house, and are unqualified or unable to have authority to lead, to teach, and instruct is, one, not true. Two, isn't in the Bible. And three, it is the complete opposite of what we see taught and modeled by Jesus and the leaders of the New Testament church. And I get it, sometimes we look at certain passages and we're getting ready to look at one. That you look at it and go, well, this is what it says. Yeah, the, there are times, because the Bible was, was, has been handed down over thousands of years and translated from, from different ancient languages into modern languages, there are times that what the Bible actually says, word for word on a page, and what it means are different. And you have to dive into, you got to dive into the text, you've got to dive into the culture, you have to do contextualization to really understand that. A lot of times it's word for word, it's one to one. Sometimes what the Bible says and the way we read it and what, the way we, we read it through kind of our modern lens and how it would have been heard and intended to be heard by an ancient Near East audience is different. And so one of those kind of controversial passages comes in Titus chapter 2. It says this, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-control, sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine. They are to teach what is good, so train the young women to to love their husbands and children. Now let me just say this. Stop right there. Let's leave this here. This is not intended to be a blanket statement limiting who women can teach and lead and who they can't. This is a pastoral letter written by Paul to a man named Titus who had helped to lead the church in Corinth, and at the time that he was writing it, was leading churches on the Isle of Crete. So what Paul is doing here is he's writing to a pastor, giving a pastor specific instructions regarding a specific congregation that was dealing with specific issues regarding best practices when it comes comes to mentoring relationships. And if you wanna dive in a little bit deeper to this, what we learn is there were false teachers back in this day, just like there are false teachers now that teach false gospels. And the false teachers back in this day, they actually targeted women. They would kind of lure women in and bring women in with a false gospel, a false teaching, and then send them back into their cities, their homes, and their families. And a lot of times we read, like Paul, even in Corinthians, says, like, I don't permit a woman to to, to speak in church, right? But she has questions about doctrine. If she has questions about theology, she needs to ask her husband. Here's the deal. We read that sometimes and go, see, women, you got to be quiet in church. That's not what it means, What it meant, and actually it was an indictment on the men, what it meant was men were not doing their jobs. They were not being the provider and protector of their family, right? They were not being the provider and protector of their wives. They left the front door wide open for false teachers to get in and begin to twist the thinking and the faith of their wives, And so the reason, right, that this is addressed, the reason that this, it's more, it's actually Paul's challenging men. He says, listen, wives, if you have doctrinal questions, go ask your husbands. And their response would have been, well, he doesn't know. And Paul's response would have been, I know. And all the guys in the church, when it was read, would have gone, oh, shoot. It's actually Paul saying, listen, men, you got to do your jobs. Why? Because your wives are falling victim to false teaching. So this is a specific letter written to a specific congregation dealing with specific issues. Paul goes on, he says that women are to be self-controlled, pure, working at home. Breathe. Literally means this. It means home despot or home guard. That's the original language. And when you define those words in the original language, it would have been interpreted like this. Working at home means this, that, that, that wives and women have the authority. You are the authority and you are the ruler when it comes to how the family functions. Let me just be 100% clear. Working at home has absolutely nothing to do with being required to stay at home. It's not about a location, it's about an area of authority. Does that make sense? And Paul says to be kind and submissive, which means to voluntarily and joyfully belong to your husbands. Again, super important. When when, when the, the Bible talks about relationships between men and women, roles and responsibilities between men and women, and it uses the word submit, I know that drives us crazy, but what Paul says is that we submit to one another first. But women, you are to submit voluntarily and joyfully, right, to belong to your husband, not all men. So the expectation for men and women, men, the expectation is not that all women submit to you. That's not it. Women, the expectation is not that you submit to all men. What it is in marriage is that we joyfully and willingly belong to one another and we submit to one another. That's what that means. Why? So that the word of God may may not be reviled. Ultimately, what we're getting at here and what we're going to unpack today is this. When it comes to marriage, when it comes to our lives, when it comes to all of this, something bigger is at stake. And we're going to talk more about that here in just a minute. But I need you to understand, what what I've experienced in the last, I don't know, four weeks Has made me realize, originally we were going to do a series because we had heard from a lot of our groups that kind of the primary area of struggle for men and women was was marriage, family, parenting, stress, relationships, things like that. All right, we'll spend eight weeks talking about it in the fall. We'll add a little, you know, one-day summit in in that to, to really help people with this. We just want to help people out. What I realized a couple weeks ago is in talking about marriage, family, parenting, relationships, roles in the home, we picked a fight with the devil. And the reality is this. The one thing that he wants to destroy, the thing that he he wants to destroy, because ultimately what we're about to find out is it images who God is, is marriage, sexuality, intimacy, right? That's what Satan's after. He's like, I can't get to Jesus, but, man, I can tear their marriages apart, which are designed and meant to imitate, reflect, and image who Jesus is. So I'll just tear marriages apart. We'll just do that. We'll tear marriages down. We'll, make, we'll, 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 we'll just tear this apart. And by doing that, we'll get at the very image of God. One author I read this week said this, that the woman in the house, the woman in your life, your marriage, or your family has authority in the home. She has authority in your life, in your marriage, in your family when it comes to issues great and small. Part of a husband's job is to protect the authority and provide the kind of honor and respect that God has given to the lady of the house, the woman in your life, in your marriage, or your family. Right? That's part of our jobs. So let me just make this really clear before we dive into some other stuff, right? Ladies, you're the queen. Men, you're her warrior. She's the queen, you're her warrior. And here's the deal. Fellas, your sword, your shield, and your armor are in service to two people, God and her. That's it. That's it. So let's unpack this. Grab your Bibles, Got your Bible, Bible app. Open to Genesis chapter one. It's on page one. You don't have to go very far, All right? Genesis chapter 1. Here's what it says. Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 46. It says, then God said, let us make man, the word man is mankind or people, in our image, which that word image is a masculine word, and after our likeness, that word is a feminine word. And then God says this, let, let them, men and women, have dominion. The word dominion means to co-rule in a, div- in a defined territory or space. Right? Dominion means to co-rule in a God-defined territory or space. Let them co-rule. Right? Give them, let's give them dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing on the earth that creeps. So God created man, mankind, in his own image, his being Jesus's. Right? So in the image of God, he, Jesus, created him. Again, that's a masculine word given to humanity. It means humanity. So God created humanity, right? Jesus created humanity, male in God's image, and female in God's likeness. That's how we were created. See, the Bible tells us that Jesus was actually the one that spoke everything into creation. So when Jesus created us, right, what he did, when he created humanity, he spoke into creation, into men, God's image, and into women, God's likeness. And what we learn is this, that God gave Adam and Eve a defined territory. The Garden of Eden, that is your domain, that is your home. This is where your life will exist. This is what your life will be built on. This is what your life will be built around. This is your domain. And in that domain, what God did was he gave them shared authority, dominion, to co-rule as equals under his ultimate authority, right? Because, again, if you notice this, God says, let them, right? Which means everything that everything that that we are able to do is because God allows it. Let them have dominion. He doesn't say, and they get dominion. It's, no, let them have dominion because I'm allowing it, right? He gave us that to co-rule under his authority with specific and primary but not sole expectations, roles, and responsibilities. And here's the end goal. Here's the end goal of all of this. Here's the big, the big picture, right? The reason that God did this was so that when all of creation sees men and women co-rule, which means we exercise shared dominion in the space that he's given us, which is our domain, which is our home, our marriage, and our family, in such a way that we look like him, image, masculine, and act like him, likeness, feminine, when all of creation truly sees, what all of creation truly sees is a full and clear picture of God. That's the point. Adam was to image God and to be being the provider and protector. Eve was to embody God's likeness by embodying his characteristics and personality. That's why marriage being meant and intended and to be only to be shared between a man and a woman is such a massive deal. It's a much much bigger issue than, than Supreme Court rulings. It's a much much bigger issue than political agendas. It's a bigger issue than acceptance or agendas or alignment or affirmation. And here's the truth, church, I need you to hear this today. Anything other than a marriage that's being shared between one man and one woman or between men and women cannot, will not, does not reflect God's image image and likeness to all creation. It doesn't. It can't. Anything other than a marriage being between men and women cannot, will not, does not reflect God's image to all creation. So what that means is this. When creation sees anything other than what God established, it sees something other than God. We talked about this a couple weeks in our men's group. We said that that what's happened in in our society, especially as of late, but, but it's been happening for a while, is that God has ceased to be love and love is now God. And so we build our relationships thinking that love is the ultimate thing to pursue and we move God somewhere else. If it's anything other than him, it doesn't reflect who he is. So women, like men, were created intentionally by God to reflect his character to all of creation. Masculinity, femininity were, were God's idea, and God chose to create an entire being that, according to him, would be the best at embodying and displaying the unique sides and aspects of his own character and personality to the rest of the world. And so the question is this, like, how do we do this? Like, how, how do women, wives, and moms reflect God's Likeness, what does that look like? How do we do this? I'm going to answer that question in just a second, but, but I want to be really clear again because these are the kinds of topics, and we talk about this, like, if I teach this wrong, like, we're dipping into, like, heresy, right? And I don't want to do that. I want to make sure we teach this right. So I want to make sure when we walk out of this place that everybody's got a pre- pretty clear understanding of what we're saying and what we're not saying. Again, I'm saving you the time of writing an angry email, right, too. So I'm not saying that God is some, like, androgynous, non-binary being. That's not what I'm saying. When we pray, we don't say God our Father and also maybe our Mother. Like, that's not what we say. And this is why. When God refers to himself, he does so in such a way that clearly states and establishes that he, the fact that he is indisputably male. God is in no way, shape, or form confused or dysphoric when it comes to his own gender. He's not. Jesus is a him. God is a him. The Holy Spirit is a him. So I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that God is somehow confused or God is somehow non-binary. That's not what I'm saying. Here's what I am saying. God, being supremely and sovereignly perfect, decided in creation to uniquely create men and women and then assign us roles and responsibilities and expectations of reflecting the unique aspects of his own person and character to the world. That's what's going on. So let's get back to my original question, all right? How do women embody and display who and what God is like? If you've got your Bibles open, again, flip over to Exodus chapter 34. And just so you know, the verses we're about to read are the most quoted verses throughout all of the Bible. Like, they appear first in Exodus chapter 34, and then they appear again time after time after time after time through the Old Testament and the New Testament. Most quoted verses in, in all the Bible. And they come from a request that Moses makes to God, right? Moses asks God this, like, help me understand what you're like. I want to know what you're like, right? Moses had seen in the Exodus the image of God. He had seen, right, physically. He had seen, you know, the, the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke. He'd seen sea's part, right? He's, he's seen that. He's seen manna fall out of the sky. He's seen rock water flow from a rock. He has seen the image of God. But now he wants to get a better handle on the likeness of God. And So he asks God, God, tell me what you're like. I want to know you. And here's what God says, Exodus 34, sorry, verse 5. It says, the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, Moses, proclaiming his name, the Lord, Yahweh. That's his name. And Yahweh means, to God, I am. And to us, Yahweh means he is. Right, again, indisputably male. Yahweh, that's my name. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, I am, I am, or he is, he is the Lord, compassionate and gracious. A compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their parents, the third and fourth generation. So when God describes, or when God answers the question, God, what are you like? Here's how he describes his own likeness. Number one, he's compassionate. Again, if you're taking notes, write this down. The word for compassion in Scripture is used often to describe the kind of love that a mother has for her child. And it's not a love. It's not just an affectionate love. The word compassion is actually an action word. It means there's nothing I won't do. There's nothing I won't do to lift up, save, protect, care for whoever this person is. Which is why I think that using a mother's love for her child is a great picture of God's compassion. Because God says, I'm willing to do anything for you. And we see him prove that. When he sent his own son to die... I have compassion. I'm willing to do whatever it takes. The next one is gracious. And I love this. The word for grace or graciousness in the, in the Old Testament means to, to give aid, to help, and to comfort someone in their time of need. Again, let me just make sure we're really clear on what this means. To, to help someone, to comfort someone in a time of need is not in a housekeeper, hostess, let me get you something to eat kind of way. To care for someone in a time of need, this is a military term. It's the same way we would describe, like, a para rescue soldier that drops into the fight to save the wounded. It's the same thing that we would use to describe a Coast Guard swimmer that jumps into the waves to save the tired and the drowning. That's what it means to be gracious. Slow to anger means patient, level headed, even temperature, and get this, guys, emotionally mature. That's what it means. Patient, long-suffering is the actual word. Level-headed, even temperature, emotionally mature. That's what God's like. And then he says this, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands. None of these are actually feeling or emotion words. Again, they're all action words. They're action statements that get added together that essentially mean this, that, that God will do what he promises that he'll do because that's who he is. Those last statements, right, when you add them all together, which is what God intended them to do, means this, that God doesn't fail. He will not let you down. He will not disappoint you. And then it says this, forgiving wickedness is sin, but not leaving the guilty unpunished. Right? And it goes on and on and on from there. Forgiveness, what that means for us is this, is that God is unconditionally willing to lift the weight of wickedness and rebellion off of us and onto him. God's justice isn't simply to punish for punishment's sake. God's justice right, is all about standing for what's right. God's justice is intended to bring healing and restoration to the world by eradicating sin and evil. And something I studied this week told me that that in in Hebrew writing, order matters. The way that things are ordered, it matters. So it's a huge deal that that God in his character, what he's like, offers limitless love and unconditional forgiveness before he offers justice and punishment. That's what he offers first because that's what he wants for you. And here's the truth. The choice is forgiveness or justice. And the reality is this: they both are perfect when it comes to dealing with sin and evil. God's forgiveness is perfect when it comes to dealing with sin and evil. God's justice is perfect when it comes to dealing with sin and evil. You can't have one be perfect and the other one not be. So no, that's a lot. Ladies, as you read that, you see that list, it's like, whoa, that's a lot. I gotta do like. Here's here's one thing I want to make really clear. One is you do not have to do there's no expectation because you are we are human beings to do that perfectly and never fail. This is what we strive for, right? The other thing I want to point out too is this. Women being responsible for reflecting the likeness of God does not mean that you are solely responsible for providing all of that, right, in your marriage, to your kids, in your family, in your relationships, to everyone around you. It does not mean that you in your family and your relationships are the only source of compassion, grace, patience, love, faithfulness, forgiveness, and justice. That's not what it means. And fellas, men in the room, people in your life, right, they need to see us. They need to see the likeness of God in us. Men, women, boys, girls, young and old. The world needs to see something different in us. And so, fellas, men, boys, young men, your response when compassion and grace and faithfulness and love and justice and mercy, when all of those things are needed in a situation, cannot be this. Yeah, sorry, that's her department. That cannot be your response. Dads, when when your kids need to feel grace and compassion and forgiveness, it's not... Go ask your mom for that. That's not what I do. We can't say that. Women, what reflecting the likeness of God does mean is this. You sense and you monitor and you regulate the levels of compassion and grace and patience and love and faithfulness and forgiveness and justice in your life and in the lives of those under your care. You command and teach and call out bring out this godlike compassion, grace, love, faithfulness, forgiveness of justice from us to be given to others and put on display, to, put, to be put into action, right? You know this. Thermostat, what it's doing is it's sensing and regulating. It's too hot, it's too cold. Sometimes our anger goes off the charts and we move beyond justice into revenge and vengeance. That's too hot, cool it down. Sometimes we're slow to offer things like love and faithfulness and forgiveness. Too cold, need to heat it up. That's your job. That's the role. That's what it looks like to embody this. You're You're not solely responsible for this. But you are responsible for calling it out of us, bringing it out of us, encouraging it out of us to say you're too hot, you're too cold. Bring it up, bring it down. Proverbs 4, I love this, verses 5 through 9 says this, get wisdom, get understanding. Don't forget my words, don't turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom, which basically means this, don't ignore, brush off, or refuse to respond when the woman of your life, your house, your wife, your mom, calls for the likeness of God to grow in you and to be reflected from you, right? Because why? What what does Solomon do when it comes to wisdom? He gives her this, this pronoun, she will protect you. Do not turn away from wisdom. Do not rebuke. Do not refuse. Do not forsake the teachings and instructions and authority and respect of the woman in your life. Why? Because she'll protect you. We talked about this in the tech booth before church. How many times, just be honest, how many times in the aftermath or in the ER have we said, I just should have listened to her? She was right. Solomon goes on. He says, love wisdom and she'll watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this. He says, get it. Which means this. Pay attention to the women in your lives. Though it may cost you all, get understanding. Cherish her and she will exalt you. Embrace her and she will honor you. She will give you a garland to grace your head and present you with a glorious crown. The result of responding when the women in our lives take the lead in growing the likeness of God in themselves and others and then calling that likeness out in us to be reflected through us and the actions of others, like that's, like this is what happens. When we do this, what we receive is honor. We receive exaltation. We receive a glorious crown. Why? Because you listen to your wife. Because you listen to your mom. That's what the result is. And this is what's at stake, church. This is why it's so much bigger than any of us could ever have imagined or realized. There's an opportunity, right, for those in our lives and who our lives touch, right? Every place our lives go, wherever our families go, there's an opportunity for us, for people to experience the likeness of God in us and through us. And so, ladies, what we need from you is for you to grow that likeness in yourself and then also in us. We need you to call it out of us so that the environment in our lives feels like Jesus to anyone and everyone that steps into our homes or comes into contact with us or our families. Ladies, this is your role. This is your responsibility. This is the expectation that you were created to live into because it's because of your leadership that things feel different about us, because you set the tone. And you help to curate and regulate the environment in our hearts, in our souls, in our minds, and in our bodies so that we act and feel and become more like God. And just like I told the men last week, ladies, if you succeed in everything else in life but you fail in your primary role and responsibility of commanding and calling out the clearest reflection of the likeness of God in yourselves and in your family to the world around you, then you failed Completely. That's our primary role and responsibility because something, is, something bigger is at stake. So let's get, really, let's get really practical as we wrap this up, right? Earlier this week, my wife and I have test-fired this on several folks, run this by several ladies in our church. Like, what do you think about this? Um, and we've talked about this. So, so earlier this week, my wife and I were talking about this. We were talking about Proverbs 31, right? She didn't want me to say this, but I'm, I'm sorry. She, she immediately, and I know this, she explained why, she immediately rolled her eyes, Proverbs 31. She's like, oh yeah, here we go. You're gonna tell us all we have to be Proverbs 31 women. Because and I said, Well, what was that reaction? She's like, Well, it's like it's like the staple on every like women's ministry video and thing and that we do. It's like, be a Proverbs 31 woman. She's like, it's just so much pressure. And there's just so much to this that feels kind of defeating. And so then I asked her what Proverbs 31 meant and what she thought it meant to her, and then we kind of read through it together, which is we're about what we're about to do, right? before we do this, I want to read something from a commentary that went into great depth on these verses. The commentary said this. The woman that's presented in in these verses, Proverbs 31, is someone who runs an entire estate, not merely a single household. She's someone who conducts and owns and runs businesses, real estates, vineyards, and, and merchandise. She oversees charitable and philanthropic efforts. Get this. She's not just some man's dream woman, but she is the representation of the universal woman that God created. So here's what it says. Proverbs 31, starting in verse 10. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her. And he will have no lack of gain. She does him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands, which means this. She takes responsibility for the role and responsibility in her family. She takes ownership of that. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings a continual supply of abundance to the family. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is still yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens, which means this. She's got a staff. She has a staff. She has a team that she leads. She considers a field and she buys it, which means this. She has the power and authority to handle the business of her family and to grow the businesses to better support her family. She's in the real estate business. Hey, that field looks nice. We're going to buy that. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She runs and starts a business. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. What she makes and what she works on is actually meaningful and good, right? Her work matters. It's a value to other people and helps to provide for her own family. Goes on, says her lamp does not go out at night, which means this, she gets stuff done. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hands to the poor. She reaches out her hands to the needy, which means this. She actually makes clothes and takes care of the, the, the hurting, the sick, and the poor. She makes it for them, which means this. She uses her industry. She uses her business to better the lives of other people. So she's not afraid of snow for her household uh, or for her household. For her household, they're all clothed in scarlet, which means this. She's prepared for the future and all the seasons that may come. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Purple is a symbol of royalty. Her husband is known in the gates where he sits among the elders of the land. Get this, he's better and he's more known and respected, not because of what he's done, but because of her. She makes linen garments and sells them. She's a successful businesswoman. She delivers sashes to the merchant, right? Strength and dignity are her clothing. She laughs at the time to come. She ain't worried about it. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness, which means she is on guard. She is ready. She's on her toes. Her eyes are open. She's awake. Her children rise up. Literally means they stand when she comes in the room and her husband also. And he praises her. Her husband says to her, many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. And then it closes like this, closes the, book, the last words in the book of Proverbs. Say this, charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates where manners of all business are conducted. That's what that means. So my question is this, where in there do you see stay home, raise kids, cook and clean? You don't because it's not in there. The original Hebrew text, I thought this was fascinating. In the original Hebrew text, when we read that, it actually takes those attributes and characteristics of a woman and arranges them all in alphabetical order. right? So the way we read it, like Hebrew, when they would have read it in Hebrew, it would have felt like a little clunky and out of rhythm for a poem. But when we read it, like, it just kind of reads smooth, right? But the reason that it felt clunky for Hebrew readers back in the day was because all of those attributes of women were written in alphabetical order. And the reason for this was that so when it was taught, everyone, which means men and women, would be able to memorize it more effectively. You remember alphabetical order? You can memorize who she is and what she means and what she's worth. You can internalize it and then put it into action. The same commentary that I read went on to say this. Let, let all know about this kind of woman who in piety and devotion and with all skill and diligence builds her home. In her is the foundation of society as Judaism sees it. For in Hebrew, the word home, which our lives are built around and function around, the word for home and the word for woman are, often, are oftenly used synonymously. And the reason that they're used synonymously is not, ladies, so, so that you're made to stay there stay at home but the reason that it's used synonymously ladies is because in you that's what we find home And so we've ended this series with the same question every week and that's this as for me and my house we are blank fill in that blank angry peaceful sad worried anxious nervous depressed joyful and as you think about these roles, same question I asked the men last week. Ladies, what? when you fill in that blank, what, what elements of responsibility are you willing to take for what's in that blank? If it's not the way you want it to be, what, what are you willing to own to say, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Here's what I can own. Men, what about the, the words in that blank, right, that, that we use to fill in that blank, right? They're there because maybe you're not letting your wife be who she's supposed to be. what are you willing to change? What are you willing to step into? Because now we know what's really and truly at stake. It's the image and likeness of God displayed to all of creation. So you have to know where you are to be able to get where you're going. So ladies, what needs to change this week? What needs to change this afternoon? What needs to change tomorrow and the next day? What conversations need to happen in your home? And regulate that environment where the likeness of God is grown in you and called out in us. You are our queen. Whether you're mom, wife, grandmother, or single, you are a queen. And the men in your life, they are your warriors. Our sword, our shield, our armor is in service to God and you, that's it I'm going to pray for us we're going to worship today if you need prayer, I'd love to pray with you down front or you can spend some time at the foot of the cross here if you just need some time with Jesus alone you can do that, if you want to join our church, you want to be a part of this community I'd love to have you join our community also understand, there's probably some are like I'm getting the car and I'm never coming back okay we teach Jesus here We're not sorry about that. If you wanna join our church, wanna be a part of this place, wanna be a part of this family, we'd love to have you join this church. We're all works in progress here. As men and women, as husbands and wives, as moms and dads, we are not perfect. We don't claim to be perfect. We'll never be perfect, right? But we can chase after the one who is. We can be and become who he desires us to be. If you wanna join this place, we'd love to have you a part of our family. If you want to if you want to say yes to Jesus, maybe you've never said yes to Jesus before in your life and you want to say yes to Jesus today, we'd love to, to chat with you about that as well. I'm going to pray and then we're going to worship. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for all that you've given us. We thank you for who you've created us to be. We thank you for the, the, the dominion, the authority that is on loan from you to us to be who you created us and called us to be, to exercise those roles and responsibilities inside the domain, that territory or space that you've given to us. As men and women, may we see and honor and respect each other. May we not see territory or turf, but may we see a partner. May we support each other and love one another. Jesus, today I pray that there is a restoration of hearts in this room. I pray that there's a restoration of marriages in this room. I pray that this is the day that that, that husbands and wives, moms and dads look at each other and say, this was the moment where from now on things changed. Lord, we love you. And we pray all this in your name. Everybody say, Amen. Let's stay in the worship.